It's powerful to read um, and reflect on uh, the passion narrative uh, that, that tells us in the final days uh, of Christ's life, uh, his journey uh, to the cross. Um, <clears throat> We are nearing closer and closer to Easter, um, and I'm excited uh, to celebrate Easter together as a church family, um, but also want to make mention to you, um, we are going to plan to do a Good Friday uh, service uh, on Friday, April 2nd at 630. Um, we will actually be joining in uh, with Arbor Bridge Church, uh, the church uh, whose building we use. Uh, we're going to be doing a joint Good Friday uh, service with them. I anticipate uh, that we will uh, have a, uh, a group where we'll have enough distance to, to be able to maintain all of our uh, same social distancing um, uh, criteria in terms of three seats uh, between households and uh, masks, of course, uh, as well as, uh, Lord willing, good weather that allows us to uh, not only keep the doors open, which we always do, but to keep them open and enjoy the nice uh, weather, uh, Lord willing. Uh, though, of course, it could always change in Michigan uh, and snow, perhaps, you know, on Easter weekend. But uh, let's pray that that doesn't happen. But more important than those things, I'm excited to be able to worship uh, with Arbor Bridge. Um, we've, we've benefited from using the space over the last few months, and I've had the chance to get to know uh, the pastor of Arbor Bridge as well as the, another church that meets here. Uh, they won't be able to do Good Friday with us this time around, but we hope to do something within in the future, Hope Church. Uh, which is a Korean congregation that meets before us in this building. I've had the privilege of getting to know their pastors as well as uh, the pastor of Arbor Bridge and uh, really looking forward to the opportunity to be mutually encouraged uh, together uh, as we reflect on Jesus' death uh, and what that means for us on Good Friday. And so uh, the, the plan will be for that service to be pretty tight uh, to an hour uh, as we recognize uh, it'll be later in the day and uh, perhaps you'll be anticipating doing dinner beforehand or doing dinner uh, afterwards. And, uh, and so uh, please uh, make, make a point to, to be a part of that because I think it'll be an encouragement to you um, uh, this Easter season. Or reading, or reading through uh, the Passion Narrative in, in our sermon or in our scripture reading, uh, and then spending our time in Romans 6 through 8, because of this reason, I don't want us to merely know about the cross and the resurrection, as vital as it is, as fundamental and foundational as it is to the Christian life. But I also, and, and more particularly, want how we live to be transformed by the cross and the resurrection. I, as we look at God's word, we're, we're asking ourselves, what does the cross and the crown mean for our lives? What does Jesus' death and resurrection mean for the way that we live? And in Romans 6, we saw that uh, our identity as a follower of Christ is we are united to Christ. Our union with Christ is the, the sum total and blessing of, of all that it means uh, to be a follower of Jesus. As we come to Romans 7, it's a passage that is a little darker uh, because it takes us to the heart of sin. It takes us to the one thing that we all have but don't prefer to talk about. Uh, it takes us to the reality of our sin and not only uh, <clears throat> our sin, but particularly remaining sin in our lives as believers. And, and what does it mean as a follower of Christ in our pursuit of of holiness and our pursuit of godliness, the, the, the work of sanctification, what does it look like for us to, to do battle with sin, to fight sin in our lives? 
So we're going to look at Romans 7, uh, the chapter in full, and we're going to see uh, three, three main kind of headings that I want us to, to look at, beginning in verses 1 through 6. I want us to see our new status. We, in many ways, talked about this last week, but uh, in Romans, say, 3 through uh, chapter uh, 6, up to really and through chapter 8, Paul has been talking about this status that we have. It's a status that can be summed up both as justified by grace through faith in Christ and also sanctified by grace through our union with Christ. We saw um, or or we see in Romans chapter 3, we won't look at this in depth, but in Romans chapter 3 verses 31 through 32, uh, Paul says, now the righteousness of God, excuse me, 21 through 22, has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Paul Paul talks about how we're justified by grace through faith, not by keeping the law. And then last week in Romans 6.13, we saw how uh, we are no longer under the dominion of sin, but we're uh, we're not under law, but we're under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Paul is saying that we are not only justified by grace through faith in Christ, not by keeping the law, but we're sanctified by grace through our union with Christ, not by keeping the law. Romans chapter 7 is about our fight with sin as well as our relationship to the law. Uh, It takes us into understanding uh, these two topics. And and really, chapter 7 picks up uh, what verse 13 began to talk about when Paul said that sin will have no dominion over you because we're not under law but under grace. Paul picks that back up here now and explains what it means for us to not be under the law but be under grace. So look at at verse 1 with me. It says, Do you not know, brothers... For I am speaking to those who know the law. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman, he uses this analogy, is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. And accordingly, she will... Uh, accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law and is um, free to marry another man. If she, <clears throat> if she marries another man, Paul says she is not an adulteress. And now here's the key. He uses this analogy to set up this to describe our new status. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not of the old way of the written code. So one of the most powerful truths of the gospel is that we're set free, set free from sin and death. But it's not just uh, being set free from what we're held in bondage to. It's, it's, there's a positive side to it, that we're set free from those things and we're bound to another. So our new status in Christ, in in many ways, we could describe it as that we belong to Christ. And as we looked last week and reflecting on our union with Christ, to to be united to Christ, to belong to Him, means that all that He has and has done is applied and is true of us. We've been freed from the law, and now we are bound to Christ, to the one who died for us and who rose from the dead. And so at its core, Christianity is a change of allegiance. We no longer belong to sin and to the law. 
the condemnation of the law, but now we belong to Christ. In a deep sense, this is what's most important about you, is that you belong to Christ. The New City Catechism, which builds on the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, begins with this question. Question one, what is our only hope in life and death? Read, Read the answer with me. That we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. The kid's answer is a little little less clumsy. And it's that we are not our own, but we belong to God. Uh, That's our hope, is that we aren't our own, but we now belong to Him. And that's what Paul is saying, is that there, it's, it's, it's kind of a breakdown, of course, in every analogy, but he uses this marriage analogy to say uh, marriage is a covenant commitment for life. And so as long as you're married, assuming there's not other issues uh, of infidelity that Paul and the scriptures talk about in other places, you're bound to one another. But if a spouse dies, then the other one is free to marry. They're released from that commitment of their covenant, uh, and they're free to marry again. But what he says now is not that <clears throat> uh, he kind of switches it up. It's that it's not that uh, <clears throat> it's more more about how we died in Christ. So now we have this new relationship. We're released from the law. And we belong to Christ. When he says that uh, we died to the law through the body of Christ, that's not talking about the church. It's talking literally about the death of Christ in our place on the cross. So there's, there's two things that this new status of belonging to Christ means for us that I want us to see. Since we belong to Christ, we're free from the condemnation of the law. That's what he says and he's getting at when he says, While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. It's, it's sin using the law to bring about death. We'll talk about how that all plays out here in a moment, but the emphasis is on the condemnation of the law. The law condemns those who reject it, those who say, I don't need God, I don't need the law. Well, you can run from it, but in the end you'll be condemned by it because you failed to live up to God's righteous standards. But at the same time, we see that anyone who looks to the law as a means to save themselves will also be condemned by the law because as Paul's going to show us, you can't keep the law in your own strength. The law, as we will see, uh, our understanding of the law from this passage, it, it shows us our need for a Savior, that we are unable to save ourselves. And so in belonging to Christ, we have the one thing that we can't do for ourselves, the one thing the, the law can't do for us, is we're free from the condemnation of the law, but also in the positive sense, since we belong to Christ, now we're actually able not to bear fruit for death, but as you see in, in verse uh, 5, we're now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive to sin through, the, uh, through union with Christ. We serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way. Now we can bear fruit for God, as it says back in, in verse 4, excuse me, that. We've, we've been released from the law in order that we may bear fruit for God. So it's in belonging to Christ that we actually are able, having been set free from sin, having been released from the law, that we're actually able to bear fruit for God. We're able to obey Him. We're able to serve Him in a new way, in the new way of the Spirit. So rather than the law condemning us, what happens to the person who who is united to Christ, who puts faith in Christ, they're actually freed up and are enabled to obey God's commands through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we saw in the New Covenant that it's the Spirit that God uses to write His law on our hearts. 
so that we might obey him. Now, one of my uh, favorite commentators and, and preachers that I quote often, John Stott says, the Christian life is serving the risen Christ in the power of the Spirit. We bear fruit for God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's at this point that I would, part of me would just like uh, to skip over to chapter 8. Paul technically at this point can skip over. He's introduced that we now bear fruit for God by the power of the Spirit, not by the old written code. He could skip over to chapter 8 and talk about life in the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, some people would say, is the greatest chapter in all the Bible. Um, and I'm excited for us to, to look at it last week. But to get to the greatest chapter in all the Bible, you've got to go through one of the most confusing chapters, at least in Romans and maybe in the Bible, some would say. And that's what follows in verses 7 through 25. Because really what Paul's going to do now, is he's going to show us how we're to understand the law and how we relate to the law. So as eager as I am to get to Romans 8, I must first take you through Romans 7. And it's in Romans 7 that we move from seeing our new status of belonging to Christ in, Rome, in 7, 1 through 6, to a new understanding of the law in 7 through 13. <clears throat> and I think what, uh, what, we're, what we're going to see here <clears throat> is as Paul is, is unpacking what, what God's grace really means for us, uh, he's, he's asking all these questions uh, that we saw it when we were looking at Romans 6. When he, when he says in Romans 5 that grace now reigns, it's like, it's like when there's a, a conversation or, or an argument and <clears throat> um, maybe somebody uh, misunderstands what's being said or maybe they're reading into what's being said. They think the implications of what that person says are particularly offensive or because they say one thing, they think they may mean another. I don't know if you've ever had those kind of conversations where maybe there's, there's some missing of one another. I think in a way that's, that's kind of what Paul is doing here. He's been talking about how amazing God's grace is and how grace now reigns through our union with Christ and His death and His resurrection. And he says, but don't misunderstand me. Grace doesn't excuse your sin. That's Romans 6. You know, don't, don't go about thinking that you can just go on sinning because God is gracious. No, when we understand God's grace, it motivates obedience. And in a similar way, he's going to say here, just because you've been released from the law, don't go around thinking that the law is bad. He, he wants to help us understand God's purpose in giving the law and what it means to relate to the law now as a Christian. So, <clears throat> One of the things that makes chapter 7, particularly from verse 7 down, uh, somewhat uh, difficult to understand is, is trying to understand how the reference, uh, Paul's reference point as he talks about the law. Is he talking about the law from the perspective of, uh, of not yet believing, uh, from the perspective of a, a non-believer, uh, from someone who hasn't yet put their trust in Christ? Or is he talking about it from the perspective of a Christian? Is this how a Christian should think about these things? Um, <clears throat> some take Romans 7, uh, 7 through 25 as Paul's experience before coming to faith in Christ, and Romans 8 as talking about what, what it looks like to live life in Christ and in the Spirit. <clears throat> but I think it's better to, to kind of follow Paul's argument as it unfolds. And, and really, as we began uh, looking at chapter 6 last week, 
we're in this whole section where Paul is talking. He's moving from our justification by grace through faith in Christ to talking about our sanctification, the, the journey of our growth in the Christian life uh, through our union with Christ and, and what that looks like. And so I think he's addressing issues as they arise based on what he's just said. And he's just described how we're free from the condemnation of the law belonging to Christ, and now we can actually get on uh, with living our lives for God. We're alive to God, and we can bear fruit for God, and we do that through the power of the Spirit. But he's raised this issue of the law, and so he has to press into it and explain it. And so I think Romans 7 fits within that. And we've, we've already seen how uh, Paul explains our new status in Christ. He's, not, <clears throat> he's, I think, now addressing those issues that relate to that new status, namely what it means to be released from the law and walk in the Spirit. So, so what I'm, I'm going to say is verses 7 through 13, Paul is giving us his personal assessment of God's purpose in giving the law. Uh, he's giving us a, uh, an understanding of the law and its implications for how we relate to the law both before coming to faith in Christ and afterwards. And then we're going to see in, in verses 14 through 25... Uh, we're going to see really our fight with sin and, and how that relates to the law. So um, the, the first question he asks, if you look there in verse 7, is what, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? Like if, if we've been released from the law, if we've died to the law, as he says in verses 4 through 6, through this new status with Christ, is, is the law bad? And he's going to say, by no means. Remember, that's a strong statement. God forbid don't think that about the law. Don't think the law bad. Don't think the law as sin. Instead, he's going to tell us three things about the law. First, the law defines sin for us. Look what he says. Um, he says, by no means the law is at sin, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would have known that it was uh, what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the law reflects God's righteousness and holiness, right? The law was given in the Old Testament, and <clears throat> as, as we see in Exodus, to a people who had been redeemed by God's grace to show them what it meant to be the people of God, uh, to reflect His righteousness and His holiness. <clears throat> it wasn't given to save them. It, it reminded them of what it meant to belong to God, as well as it pointed them to their need of a Savior written into the law was our need for a sacrifice was a need for our sin to be covered. <clears throat> but it's in the giving of the law that sin is defined for us. We see what God delights in, what's an offense to Him. To jump ahead in verse 12, uh, to kind of cap this answer to this question, Paul says the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law isn't the problem. I think some people today, and some of us sometimes we can feel this way, it's like God's commands are the problem, Right? They're so restrictive. You know, God says, I can't do this. God says, this is wrong. This isn't according to His good design. This is against His word. This is against His character. It's those Christians who are always talking about what's sinful that are the problem. Well, Paul says, no, no, no. Don't misunderstand. The law is good. God gave us the law, and the law defines sin for us. It shows us what's an offense to God. It shows us what's good. God's vision for the good life, so to speak, is much better and much bigger than ours. Our, our only dictum in this life is to do whatever you want, just don't hurt anybody, and make sure you have consent. That's, that's kind of the sum total uh, of, of how we look at life. And God says, no, I've got something much better for you. And, and we see it in His character that's displayed in the law. 
And he gave it uh, to his people uh, to show them that aspect of, of what it meant to reflect him as well as to define sin for them. And that's the point that he's making here. He's emphasizing the corrective aspect of the law, that it reveals sin. And it's interesting to, to note what Paul points out, that if he had not known that it, he wouldn't, if it wasn't for the law, he would not have known what it is to covet. This is the 10th commandment, right? You shall not covet, shall not want more of what others have or, or desire what others have. And it reminds us that sin is always first and foremost a matter of the heart. You know, if you looked at the Ten Commandments, it would be easy somewhat to kind of check off most of the boxes. If, you know, especially if you thought, well, I, don't, I haven't done any big lies, you know, so maybe just small lies. Um, you could check off most of the boxes as well as if you just kind of looked at a, a formulaic ritual perspective of what it meant to honor God and not blaspheme Him. You could kind of look at it all and go, okay, I'm pretty good. But when you get to the 10th commandment, it goes beyond the external and it goes to the internal. Everybody can see if you've broken the other commandments. They can't see if you're coveting. I can't see right now if you're coveting. But God knows. And it's almost as if Paul, who was a Pharisee, who would have said he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, he was righteous and upright in every way that he could imagine. He said what got his attention in the law was what it meant to covet. It took him to the heart of the matter. It showed him that he, if, even if he could check off most of the boxes, the boxes of the commands 1 through 9, the 10th commandment cut to the heart. And it's in coveting that we have every really illicit desire, every form of idolatry, every desiring the place of God, putting other objects in the place of God, comes, comes out in our coveting. And we see here as he defines sin that sin is both the rejection of God's commands. That's one thing. When we say, I don't want that, I'm going to go my own way. But it's also the replacing of God with self and our desires. So Paul is showing us, he's defining sin for us. And he's, he's showing us how sin is first and foremost an issue of the heart that reflects and works itself out in our actions. So the law defines sin for us. But then, in an interesting way, he says the law provokes sin in us. He said this in verse 5. He uses this statement. If you look, uh, look back there in verse 5 at the beginning, for while we were living in the flesh, that's our life apart from God, kind of under um, our, our sinful nature. It says our sinful passions were aroused by the law. They were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now he's going to say uh, in verse 9, but sin seizing an opportunity. Now note that in verse 8. And then look in verse 11. He's going to say it again. He's making, this a, making a point. Sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. He's saying that the law provokes sin in us. It exposes, is another way to look at it, it exposes sin in us. And I think what Paul says here is true for every human being since the fall. In our fallen nature, life under the sway of sin, we look at the law as an obstacle to our good and our desires. And so sin is provoked in us when we see that God says, I can't do this. We say, oh yeah? Well, I want to do that. God said, don't eat, enjoy all the blessings I've given you, Adam and Eve. But just don't eat from this one tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But what was the temptation? What was the servant's lie? Did God say? 
If you do, then you'll be like God. There it is. The heart of sin. I want to be like God. I want to call the shots. Rather than seeing the law as God's good boundary, we choose, like Adam and Eve, to play God, to choose good and evil for ourselves. So we're told not to covet. Our sinful flesh says, what's the big deal with coveting? Maybe I'll enjoy it. Maybe God's keeping something from me. I know better than God. And, and when, we, uh, when sin provoked by the law gives in, it says it produced all kinds of covetousness in Paul. <clears throat> I remember when I was in fifth or sixth grade uh, at Halloween, um, <clears throat> I had a not so good group of friends. Um, here, here I am explaining sin and I'm blaming on my friends. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I had a not so good group of friends and uh, I was a not so good friend, I guess, maybe is the better way to say it. Um, and so we decided on Halloween um, <clears throat> to, uh, after getting all our candy, uh, that there was this big house uh, not too far from us. Um, <clears throat> and I kind of lived, I lived where, it's like a country song, I lived where the, the cement, the asphalt, and the dirt road ran together. It was basically uh, where my house was. And we were kind of near, this is Arkansas for you. Uh, however, I will say in Michigan, there are really random spots where there's a dirt road. Like just up, up the road, our old neighborhood, like all of a sudden you're in the city, bam, dirt road. Um, as well as potholes in the road. So um, <clears throat> Arkansas at least uh, doesn't have the potholes. But um, there we were, kind of back a ways, um, was this big house, and they always decorated, and they had like this, hey, display with all of these pumpkins set up. So what would you do if you saw all of those amazing pumpkins set up? Probably drive by and enjoy it like any normal insane person would. Uh, but me not being such a good friend and not having such good friends, we decided that the pumpkins were there not for us to look at and enjoy, but for us to take. Not to spread Halloween cheer in our neighborhood, but just, I don't know what we were going to do with them. We took about, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 or so pumpkins in this little wagon that we had, and then we just went and smashed them. Um, and uh, it sounded like a great band name, uh, and I'm just kidding, we didn't uh, create that, but <clears throat> we just took the pumpkins. Why did we take the pumpkins? For the thrill of stealing the pumpkins. And that's how sin works. It seizes the opportunity of the law, provoked by it. Not because the law is bad, but because we are sinful and sin deceives us. The law holds out life, Paul says, and it's not that the law brought death. It shows us the good life, but instead, because of our sin, we choose death. And the commandment becomes sinful beyond measure, he says in verse 13. If you look at it, he says in 13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, God forbid, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sin and beyond measure. <clears throat> Sin is deceitful. It twists, it distorts, it deceives, makes us think that we know better than God. His commands, which are meant to show us the good life, we reject and we play God and we choose our own way. And it's, it's as if Paul is saying that's how sin it provokes sin in us, exposing our sin, showing our, our desire to, to play God. And when we do so, it ultimately, 
not only does it provoke sin in us, but the third thing is that the law condemns sin. Verses 9, 10, and 11, if you, if you look at, at those three verses, all of them in some capacity talk about death. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life provoked, proved excuse me, to be death to me. <clears throat> sin, seizing the opportunity through the law, verse 11, deceived me and killed me. It's not the law that brings death, but it's sin. And then the law is given to condemn sin, to show sin, to be sinful. It shows, as we saw in verse 13, the utter sinfulness of sin. So verse 9, in a way, is kind of Paul's self-reflection, if you will. He says, I once was alive apart from the law. Not that, not that he had new life, but that he deemed himself to be fine. Um, but when the law came, when the commandment came, when, when he became aware of God's commands, and particularly the, the in, internal aspect of, of the command to not covet, he says, sin came alive and I died. The pattern is we perceive ourselves to be good, but the law reveals our sin. And then sin does its work, and sin always leads to death. And the law shows us our sinfulness, and in doing so, condemns sin. As I said, we're tempted to think that God's commands are too restricting and keeping us from really living, when instead God's commands reveal the depth of our sin and our need for a Savior. <clears throat> and what Paul says back to our new status by belonging to Christ, it's only through our union with Him that the guilt of sin is gone and that the reigning power of sin uh, is done away with. But it brings up the issue. If all of this is true about sin, about the law, and it's, it's pointing uh, to this issue of sin, it raises the question of what does our fight with sin look like? And that's where verse 14 begins. And you'll notice a change. Paul's been talking in the first person, but now he shifts to the plural. And he does something that we saw in chapter 6 when he begins to talk about what we know. Look in verse 14. He says, For we know. He's, he's beginning to talk about those things which are fundamental to the Christian life. He, he's, he's showing us what, what we should understand as Christians. And so there's this whole conversation about, is Paul talking about you know, himself as an unbeliever or himself as a believer? What exactly is the internal battle that we see in verses 14 through 25? Is this, our Christ, is this what happens when you are a Christian with your fight with sin? Or is this what happens before you're a Christian? I think what we see here uh, is Paul talking about, uh, <clears throat> about this fight with sin from a Christian perspective. He's saying this is what we know as believers. <clears throat> but as you look at it, it is, you know, Paul says some striking things. He says that he's sold under sin, that nothing good dwells in us, that is, in the flesh. And so some people look, well, this can't be true of a Christian to say that we're sold under sin. We just saw that we're freed from sin. And to say that nothing good dwells in me. How can a Christian say this? And yet, I think uh, as you read verses 14 through 25, what you see, I think, is, is Paul aware of the, the reality of sin, of his need for Christ, and his desires have changed. He delights in the law. He, he has this wrestling with, uh, with doing what is right, not wanting to do what is wrong. <clears throat> 
He has this longing for the full and final redemption that comes through Christ. I think these are the things that you can only say as a believer. And ultimately, I'm reminded, as I look at Romans 7, of this truth, that the more we grow in Christ, the more aware we become of our sin, and the more we desire to put it to death. This is a fundamental truth as a Christian, is that as we grow in Christ, we see more and more of our sin. Our problem before we come to know Christ isn't that we have too big of a view of sin. It's often that we don't have a big enough of view of sin. We don't think that our sin is that big of a deal. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? It's because of our sin. What was He doing on the cross? Taking the judgment, the condemnation that we deserve for our sin, that the law revealed. He died in our place and for our sin. So he shows us we become more aware of our sin and we increase in our desire to put it to death. And so a corollary to this statement is that if you, if you are fighting sin, if you are unsettled about the sin that you perceive in your life, that you are aware of in your life, it is evidence of God's grace at work. For when we are engaged in our fight with sin, it's evidence of the grace of God and the Spirit of God working in our lives. And so we see three, three aspects about sin that help us in our fight with sin. <clears throat> the first is this, that sin is present, but it's not alone. We are in Christ, we, we saw in Romans 6, and therefore sin has been defeated. We're free from its guilt and its reigning power, but it's still there. Sin is still present. <clears throat> I'll never forget when I came to know Christ and... Uh, it was on a Sunday, and I started Monday, and all the words that I used to say, and the thoughts that I used to have, and the things I used to do, and the people I used to run with, all of that was still there. I came to know Christ. He was living in me, but so was sin. Sin is present, but now sin isn't alone. We have, we have the presence of God indwelling us by the Spirit of God, and yet sin remains. This is what we call indwelling sin. Sin is present but it's not alone. We have this new awareness. Though we are sold under sin, as Paul says, that in the flesh, life in the flesh, our sinful nature is still present, we also now, we have a new view of things. We see that the law is spiritual. We agree with the law, it says in verse 15. We want to do what's right, verse 18. We delight in the law of God, verse 21. When we come to faith, we have that new status of belonging to Christ, and yet we remain in the flesh. So sin is present, but it's no longer alone. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and that's what Romans 8 is going to talk about. And being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we want to put death to sin. Put sin to death. It still remains, but now it's not alone. And sin being present, it's also powerful. And though sin is powerful, it's not ultimate. And, and I think in some ways this is kind of I think in practice we all know this, but in reality we saw that we are dead to sin and in sanctification the power of sin has been broken. We don't have to sin and yet we still choose to sin. And so while we are free from the reigning power of sin, it's not what dominates us. It still is powerful. Look at what Paul says in verse 15. He says, I don't understand my own actions. I don't know if you've ever felt that way before. <laughs> what am I doing right now? Why am I doing this right now? I, you know, he, says, he goes on to say, I don't, 
I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. Excuse me, I messed it up. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And he says, I have nothing good dwells in me. That's in my flesh, my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. I, I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want, I keep on doing. You can see the internal wrestling. I, I think what Paul's describing here, it's not that this is the, the, the normal experience of the Christian, is that we don't just walk around internally conflicted all the time. Right? That's, I don't think what Romans 7 is doing is giving you, like, is, is holding this up as, like, this is the good way. Uh, always be internally at strife with yourself. I think what he's showing is that as a Christian, we, we have this internal battle going on, this fight with sin, and its pull is strong. And left to ourselves, we can't resist it. It's still that powerful. We need Christ. That's the cry at the end that we'll get to. Wretched man that I am. And we need the Spirit. That's what Romans 8 tells us. And so Paul's unpacking this battle, saying that we really would be helpless and hopeless if it weren't for Christ. And that's why sin, though powerful, is not ultimate. Because we belong to Christ. We are in Christ. Its pull and sway is strong, but it's not ultimate. It dwells within us, but it no longer has to dominate us. And the reality is, sin just sometimes is easier. It's easier to sin than to choose obedience to God. We've, we are born sinners, and so we get really good at sinning. <laughs> I mean, I'm speaking for myself, but um, some of you I know, some of you uh, maybe I don't know as well, but I, I think I can say pretty confidently, we're all pretty good at sinning. Its sway is strong. I, I came across these four ways that sin exercises its power, and as I, as I read them, I thought to myself, the way sin works is less like the traditional battle, you know, where you remember back... Um, uh, in like the Revolutionary War or World War I even, it's like everybody lined up um, in, in a row. And, you know, they had the, the people marching in the front and the cavalry and the other people in the back. I, whoever was in the back, that's where I would want to be, right? Um, but who, they got them on the front and it's like, here we are. Ready, aim, fire, you know? And you just hope that the bullet misses. But you're all just kind of lined up and, and announcing your arrival. And it's just a sh big show of power. Who's bigger than the other? Uh, <clears throat> guerrilla warfare is when you recognize that you can't beat the other side that the really if it was just strength to strength mano y mano so to speak you can't beat the other side so you have to kind of you have to attack when they're not expecting you, you have to, to try to deceive you have to make it look one way and then come around the other way Sin, our battle with sin is like guerrilla warfare. It attacks us and deceives us like guerrilla warfare. And it does it in a few ways. Here's, here's just four. These are just not direct applications from this passage, but reflecting on the way that sin works. It deceives uh, and works to kill us. Sin works in the flesh through exhaustion. It takes advantage of the weakness of our flesh and the weariness of our bodies. It tells us that, oh, you're tired. Well, you deserve a little sin. Things, things are rough, so you know what? Just give in to your desires. It's okay. <clears throat> it works through exhaustion, then through distraction. It allows us to be consumed with other things, often good things, necessary things. It tells us that you've got so much to do, you don't have time for God. You've got to get on with your day and do these other things. 
It, it keeps you focused on other things and you don't realize how sin is, is at work in your heart. You don't realize the distance between you and God. It works through substitution. When we value the external over the internal, it tells us that going to church, it, just go to church. That would be, if you just go to church, at least that'll be good. And yet, you don't take any time to foster your relationship with the Lord in private. Just pray over your meal, but you don't ever plead with God for sin in your life or for people that are close to you or for burdens that you're bearing. <clears throat> it, it allows us to, to substitute the, the external spiritual duties for exchange of the private work of guarding our heart and maintaining fellowship with God. And then procrastination. That empty promise that thinks, oh, we'll, we'll do that later. We'll spend time with the Lord later. I'll put that, I'll address this issue of my sin later. And we put it off thinking that we can do it later. Sin is powerful. And though it's not ultimate, it works in all these ways and a host of others to deceive us. And Hebrews 3, as I was reflecting in our small group this week, this passage came to my mind. Uh, and, and I think it, it helps us to think about fighting sin. It says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Hebrews 3 tells us we fight sin by taking care of our souls. By watching over our souls. Now we, we read Romans 6-8. through 8, and We, we want to know what the death and resurrection of Christ means for us. But we also don't fight sin alone. We encourage one another. And not only do we encourage one another, but particularly we encourage one another by helping each other remember our union with Christ. We share in Christ. We belong to Christ. So encourage one another not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is powerful, he says. As you read this struggle, whether people are divided as, like I said, is this the unbeliever, is this the believer? One thing you can't deny is what Romans 7, particularly starting, uh, say, verse 15 down, every Christian has had this experience. Why am I doing this again? I won't do it again, God. But there I am doing it again. I don't want to do this, God. I do want to do this. I do want to, to love. I do want to serve. I, I want my words to be filled. A kind word. A, a gentle word. I, I do want to, uh, to, to respond better the next time in that argument. But here I am again doing the same thing. Sin is powerful. But we don't walk around feeling <clears throat> and walking in defeat because we know that sin is an ultimate. The last thing is that sin wages war, but it will not win. Look at, look at verses 21 through 23. Paul's going to use the word law in a little bit of a different way here, not referring to God's law, but more of a principle. Uh, he's, he's going to say <clears throat> in verse 21, I find it to be a law, more like Murphy's law, if you will. Um, <clears throat> when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. You want to be a Christian? You want to follow God, keep his commands? You can be assured that sin will be crouching there, waiting. For I... <clears throat> I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law. Here it is, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
See, in Christ, we have this new relationship to the law. We're going to see in Romans 8 that through the, the Spirit of God, we can walk in obedience to God. Therefore, we, we now delight in the law. The law uh, we can delight in because the Spirit of God enables us to walk in obedience, bearing fruit for God. But that doesn't negate the fact that, that sin is waging a war. But it's a, it's a war somewhat like, uh, if you will, to, to push into some of your history knowledge, it's like living between D-Day and V-Day in World War II. The decisive victory uh, on D-Day uh, when we stormed the, the beaches at Normandy and, uh, <clears throat> and won the decisive victory of World War II that basically sealed the deal. In between those two, there were some bloody battles in between D-Day and V-Day when victory was declared in World War II. People, U.S. troops, the Allied troops lost lives in between D-Day and V-Day. There was some blood that was still to be shed. But the war was basically over. The decisive victory had been won. And we are waiting for the completion of that victory. In the same way as Christians, we live between D-Day and V-Day. The decisive victory over sin happened at the cross. And one day Jesus will return and the, the final completion of our redemption will be accomplished. And we live in between. And there may be some battles that we're going to lose to sin. But the war will not be lost. Sin wages a war. It's at work in, uh, in our, our sinful flesh, and our bodies. Our desires for sin are still there. Our habits of sin are still present. Those patterns and those habits that can be hard to break. It's in our thoughts. It's waging war against the law of our minds. The desires are there. <clears throat> but in the end, we win. Sin is present, but not alone. Powerful, but not ultimate. And it wages a war, but it won't win. As I was just thinking about the encouragement for us... <clears throat> Romans gives us this honest, kind of gut-level honest approach to looking at our fight with sin. And it ends with this cry, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's this battle that's taking place. And our hope is in Christ and what He accomplished. And our fuel for the battle, our fuel for our fights is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so as we think about our fight with sin, we have this, this honest look at it, and yet we don't despair in our fight with sin because we know we have victory. And I, I couldn't help as I was preparing, I came across this, not really a poem, but a reflection from Paul Tripp entitled, Wretched Man That I Am, that I think captures this for us. And I'll read this and... Um, our band will come back up and we'll spend some time in prayer before we worship. But Tripp says this, <clears throat> I'm a mass of contradictions. I don't want to be, but I am. I preach the gospel of peace, but my life isn't always driven by peace. I talk about a Jesus who alone can fully satisfy the, low, the, the soul, but I'm not always satisfied. I celebrate a theology of amazing grace, but I often react in ungrace. And if I rest in God's control, why do I seek control for myself? Even in the moments when I think I'm prepared, I end up doing what I don't want to do. Irritation, impatience, envy, discontent, wrong talk, anger, self-focus. All these things aren't the fruit of a new life. It's not bearing fruit for God. They're not the way of grace. 
There's a law operating inside of me. When I step out with a desire to do good, evil follows close behind. There's a war that rages inside of me between a desire for good and sin. There are times when I feel like a prisoner held against my will. I didn't plan to get mad in the grocery store or in that conversation, but they made me mad. I didn't plan to be discontent. It just came upon me in the quietness of my car. This discussion isn't supposed to, uh, to spiral into an argument, but it did again. I'm thankful for God's grace. I daily need God's grace to help me. The battle inside me can't be solved by theology, strategies, principles, techniques, plans, preparations, helpful hints, or outlines. His conclusion is, I've been humbled by a war I cannot win, grieved by desires I cannot conquer, confronted by actions I cannot excuse, and I've come to confess that I need rescue. As believers, we've received that rescue in Christ, and we have the confidence that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And what the law couldn't do, Christ has done in his death and in his resurrection, Paul says in Romans 8. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness, righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Our fight with sin is a fight that God has provided all that we need to walk in victory. He gives us the honest truth that there may be some battles we might lose, but he's told us that we will win the war. Our band's going to come up now. <clears throat> I just want to ask you, <clears throat> As we conclude, how's your fight with sin going? As you reflect on your own life, as, as you reflect about how sin is present, or maybe this, the powerful tug of sin, the ways in which it's waging war against you, maybe it's attitudes, maybe it's thoughts, maybe those internal desires and passions are leading you to take actions, things that you know are an offense against God. How's the battle going? How are you doing? And I ask it today not to make us despair, but to make us look to God's provision for us. To say that we don't want to just know about Jesus' death and resurrection, but to be transformed by it means that we are honest with where we're at before God and we run to His provision for us. We ask Him to enable and strengthen us to walk in obedience to Him. Really, when we think about our sin, our response can only be repentance. What sin in your life do you need to repent of today? What sin in your life do you need to be honest with God about? What areas are you struggling? Maybe, maybe you are feeling a little hopeless in your fight with sin. Today, as the music plays, I just want to give us some space to, to pray and reflect. And as we pray and reflect, I also, whether in this room or, or watching online, when, I, when we talk about sin, God's word is so clear. We can't work our way out of sin. Today, the, the confidence that the Christian has that sin is an ultimate is that your trust and your, your, your union is with Christ who died for you and who rose from the dead. So if you don't know him, if you're not trusting in him alone for salvation, let your response today be that. For the first time, be honest with your sin before God and confess your trust in him alone to save you. Let's take a minute to pray.